Turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Genesis chapter 3. Find your way to verse 15. Three years ago, I began a new preaching tradition. Each year on the Sunday before our normal Christmas service, which is next Sunday, I'm planning to preach on an Old Testament prophecy or foreshadowing of the Messiah. A prediction of Jesus Messiah from the Old Testament. So, so two years ago, I preached on, on Genesis 49, verses 8-12, through 12, which was the fairly obscure passage where we get the phrase, Lion of Judah. The Messiah would be that long-expected lion. Anybody remember that sermon? It's been long enough, I could just preach it again this week. Okay, Kurt remembers. The Messiah would be the long-expected lion. Last year then, we focused on the prophecy of Emmanuel from Isaiah chapter 7 and 8. Emmanuel means God with us. And we saw how Isaiah predicted that very thing. This year I want us to go back to the book of Genesis again, once more, and look at the passage that Christians for many centuries have called the first gospel. The first gospel. The first time that God proclaimed the good news about His Son. Now theologians, of course, have a big word for it. They often do. The big word for it is the proto-evangelion. So if you go home this week and somebody says, what was the sermon on? Tell them it was on the proto-evangelion, which means the first gospel. The first time that God proclaimed the good news about His Son. Now we might guess that the first gospel occurs very early in the Bible. And here it is in the third chapter. We might also guess that it happens only after the fall occurs. Because you have to understand the bad news before you can understand the good news. We learned that in Romans, didn't we? Well, here it is. Chapter 3 is actually the chapter that tells the story of the fall. We won't read it this morning. We might also guess that this first presentation of the Gospel, this first hint or adumbration or prediction of the Gospel would be very shadowy. And almost ambiguous because there's this long time between this first statement of the Gospel and the fulfillment of the Gospel's promises. And there is a lot of story to develop and a lot of story to unfold before anyone really understood what this first prediction of the Messiah was really saying. And that's true. When you read it here, this one verse is shadowy. And if we didn't have the rest of the Bible, I'd even say it was vague. But for most of church history, many followers of Christ have seen in this one verse, Genesis 3.15, the whole story of redemption in a nutshell. Christians have heard the good news about Jesus pulsating here in seed form and then growing out of this simple statement into the astonishing forest of redemption. However, what we would probably not guess is that this first Gospel was proclaimed to the serpent of Genesis 3. The tempter in snake form. The enemy. The bad guy in the story of the fall. The first Gospel appears as a part of the curse. Do you know what I mean when I say the curse? We looked at this earlier in the fall when we were talking about how the curse affects our work. Work, we've learned, is now 
tainted by toil and frustration and is characterized by groaning. The curse is the statement of consequences that came on us and our world when we fell into sin. The curse is the promise from God of trouble as a punishment for our rebellion. And that curse affects everything. Humans and the whole world and the serpent. You know the story. God made a world that was good and He made people to live in it as His image-bearing representatives. A first man, Adam, and a first woman, Eve. And He gave them the responsibility of filling and subduing the earth. But they failed. God had given one prohibition, to not eat the fruit of a certain tree. And this serpent, a deceptive mouthpiece of God's enemy, Satan, tempted our first parents to disobey. And they fell for it. And we fell for it in them. In Adam's fall, we sin all. The curse is the consequences of that sin. Shame, where there had been intimacy. Fear, where there had been innocence. Blame, where there had been nothing but love. And so many more consequences. Pain, disrupted relationships, distorted work, a damaged ecology, banishment from the blessings of the garden, and worst of all, death. And there was a curse on the serpent too. A curse that involved both humiliation and hostility. Let's start in verse 14. Our focus is verse 15, but start in verse 14. In verse 14, the Lord tells the serpent, who was the most crafty, verse 1, that he will be the most cursed. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you. Above all the livestock and all the wild animals, you will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. You will be humiliated. You might think that you have won this day because Adam and Eve have sinned. You might think that you deserve an exalted position above all creation, but instead you'll slither on your belly and eat dust in abject humiliation. So whenever we see a snake in the grass, we are reminded of the humiliation of the serpent's curse. Satan, you will not win. He says, all the days of your life. But then God says more than that. He says to the serpent, verse 15, what we call the first gospel. He says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Let's pray together. Lord, we've sung it. We've sung the glorious Gospel in all of its fullness this morning. Now we want to hear it in Your Word. We're listening to hear the Gospel. We're listening to hear You speak to us because we know Your Word is a two-edged sword. It's powerful. It cuts down the soul and marrow. It divides, it divides the undividable. It gets at the heart of the matter and it changes us. So Lord, we pray that You would change us because we've encountered You in Your Word. Would You do that, Lord? We need it. We need a Word from God this morning. Not a Word from Matt. A Word from God. Would You speak to us, Lord, as we, as we look into Your Holy Word? We ask for it in the name of Jesus. Amen. It's important to understand the story that you're living in. It's important to understand the story that you're living in. A lot of people don't realize that they're living in a story. They go through their life thinking that it's just 
their life. They're not a part of something bigger, something more complex. It's just Life is just this thing that you muddle through, doing your best to survive or pursue happiness or whatever. But folks don't realize that they wake up each morning as a character in a great big story. Now, some do realize this. They realize there's a story going on with their life. But most of them have the idea that they are the main character in that story. But we learned back when we studied Genesis in 2003 that we are not the main characters in the story in which we live. That would be God. He's the main character. We all have much smaller roles to play. They are significant roles, but they are not central to the story. It's important for us to understand the story that we're living in. Because understanding that story and where we are at in that story will help us to understand what's going on in our lives and guide us to make our choices as we live them. That was the point of the challenge conference in 2014 that we took our youth to. I remember seeing the lights go on for our students who were attending as they began to understand God's big story and their part in it. Remember that, Cody? We would gather after the sessions and we'd talk about what we learned. Oh, there's this great big story. All of history is a story and we have a part in it. Do you ever wonder why things are happening the way they are? I hear a lot of people saying things like, I just wonder why. I, heard, I had somebody say that to me this week. I just don't understand why. Now, while understanding the story doesn't always give us the specifics of why, it normally will supply the categories. The big story makes sense of the twists and the turns of the plot in the story that we're living in. Understanding the story also helps us to understand Christmas. Why is there a Christmas? What does Christmas mean? Is it just family gatherings and food and presents? I mean, that's good. I like that. But is that what it's all about? Why did Jesus come to earth? Why was He born in Bethlehem? Why did the angels sing to the shepherds and the wise men visit from the east? What's such a big deal that we would celebrate it this way every year? It's important to understand the story you're living in. And the first gospel in Genesis 3.15 tells us the story in miniature. It says, point one of only two, we live in a war zone. We live in a war zone. The story that you're living in is a story of conflict, of unrelenting warfare. Listen to verse 15 again. And I, that is the Lord, will put enmity between you, that is the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Want to know what kind of a story you woke up in this morning? It's a war story. There's a war on. And it's part of the curse. And this war is surprisingly good news. Because it's something that God is doing. Notice what it says in verse 15. Who is introducing the enmity, the hostility into this equation? Who is it? It's God that's doing it. And I will put enmity between you. Enmity means hostility. Okay, it means like some kind of a, of a, of a friction, uh, enemies, I'm going to make you enemies. 
I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. That's something God is doing. That's a hard thing. It means bad things. War is always bad news. But God has a good reason for everything He does. For one, He is introducing hostility between two parties who have been temporarily allied. Do you ever think about that? I don't think I noticed it as much as I did this week when I was studying this. Notice that it doesn't say, I will go to war with you, Satan. That's, of course, part of what it means. But Satan and God are already at war by Genesis 3.15. Satan may have thought that he had won. Right? I mean, he was successful. He tempted the woman, and the woman gave in, and she gave the food to the man who should have all the time been stomping on that snake. And he took the bite. And we fell. He might have thought that Eve was now on his side. But God says that He was going to step into that situation and assure that there is going to be a war between that woman and the serpent. In other words, He saved Eve. And He set her at war again with the serpent. And that there would be a war between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. Now who are they? Well, a lot of theories could be advanced. We could guess that this is the offspring of the snake, which is other snakes. And the offspring of the woman would be us, humanity. So there's this war going on between snakes and men. That's possible, because there really is. Especially the more poisonous the snakes. But most of us think there's something much more going on here. The offspring of the serpent could be demons, as the family of Satan. And there's probably some truth in that as well. The unseen enemies, the principalities and powers with whom we are at war. But it's more likely that the offspring of the serpent are those human beings who are under the sway of Satan. Those who listen to his lies and live in sin. They include the worst of people in this world and some of the most religious. Jesus told the Pharisees, who were more religious than anybody, that their father was the devil who was a liar from the beginning, and he called them a brood of vipers. Snake, snake kids. He called the Pharisees the snake kids. The offspring of the snake are those who believe the snake and do what he wants. And it's what all of us naturally are. So the offspring of the woman in this fight are those whom God has set apart to be his. God's people. In this age we call them the church. The people of God. They are the people whom God in His sovereign grace puts a love for Him in and a hate of sin in their hearts. I will put enmity between you and the woman. They are the people of faith. Those who believe the promises of God and are saved. Sin introduced a terrible consequence. A spiritual battle with Satan and his people that rages across our world and across history. And that's good news. Of course it's bad news. War is always bad news. But war is sometimes necessary. It's good news here because it means that Satan has not won and will not win. Because God didn't say, okay, I guess you got them to sin. The game's over. You win. I'll just go home. Aren't you so glad God didn't say that? No, God said, okay, Satan. This means war. 
I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Does does that help you to understand what's going on in your life right now? Why life is so difficult? I've had a very difficult year. Perhaps the hardest year of my life so far. It's up there with the year we lost our daughter to stillbirth and the year we lost Heather's mom to cancer. My surgery this summer, I was just recovering and then Blair died. These last two months have just been really stressful for me. Do you know what's helped me the most recently? It's been our hide the word verse. John 16:33. What did Jesus say? In this world you will have trouble. Isn't that encouraging? Well, actually, yeah, it is. Because it means that I'm in the right story. In fact, I'm on the right side in the story. In this world, you will have trouble. See, this is the story where we have trouble. If you're reading your story and you're saying, why? Why all this trouble? All the time. You're in the right story. Followers of Jesus have trouble. Don't believe anybody who tells you that followers of Jesus don't have trouble. If they are, they're selling you something. Because our Lord said we would. We're living in a war zone. There's a spiritual battle raging around us, so don't be surprised if things get a little hairy. This also helps us to understand Christmas. Because Christmas is about conflict. Christmas isn't about the nice stuff. Trees and holly and mistletoe. I like mistletoe. We got one hanging in the living room. I get a kiss from my wife every time I meet her under the, under the mistletoe. Love it. But that's not what Christmas is about. Christmas is an invasion in a war. Jesus came to win the war. When that angel chorus showed up, They were an army. But now I'm getting ahead of the story. First, I've got to give you an application of point number one. Make sure you're on the right side. If you're living in a war zone, if if that's the story that you're living in, it's important to make sure that you're on the, the right side. It's not always obvious. Are you offspring of the serpent or offspring of the woman? Because those are the only two choices. As Wade Nolan taught us when he came and spoke at our wild game dinner before, people think they're on the fence. He says, no, that's not true. There is no fence. You're either on this side or you're on this side. And I'll tell you that everybody is born onto the wrong side. We are natural born sinners. We are natural born rebels. Ever since Adam and Eve, our whole race has been born on the side of the snake. So it takes repentance. In fact, it takes treason against Satan and faith in Jesus to get onto the right side. You don't get born onto the right side. Even if you're born to a Christian family in a so-called Christian nation, you've got to cross over the line and join up with the other side. Have you done that? 
Have you left the service of the serpent and entered into the army of King Jesus? Here's one way that you can know. Are you becoming more like Christ? Do you hate sin? And do you love sinners? Do you hate sin? And do you love sinners? That's Jesus for you. And His followers, His disciples, are becoming more like Him. Do you hate sin, your own? Sin in general. And do you love other sinners? Because that's how you know you're on the right side. You put your faith and trust in Jesus and you're becoming more like Him. Because faith, hope, and love are the weapons of the Christian. They are how we fight on our side of this battle that has been raging all through human history. Those are our weapons, faith, hope, and love. Friends, let's not get caught up in unbelief, fear, and hate. I see a lot of that in our culture right now. Including among those who claim the name of Jesus. Unbelief, fear, and hate. That's the other side, guys. The right side is faith, hope, and love. Make sure you're on the right side. Because there's a war on and it's going to get dicey. Number two, last point, and here's where the good news part really shines. The outcome of this war has already been decided. The outcome of this war has been decided. Yes, we're in a terrible war. But the outcome of this war was decided from the beginning, from the first. Jesus Christ has won and is going to win this war. Listen to verse 15 again. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now at first when you're reading it, it's not clear who will win this war. The word for crush and the word for strike are actually from the same Hebrew root word. And it says that the serpent will strike at the heel of the offspring of the woman. Well, that's the normal approach of the snake, isn't it? This is the normal approach of a snake, isn't it? To lash out and get a winning venomous blow in the heel, taking his enemy down. I do not want a snake grabbing my heel. Okay? That could be deadly. So is this just an equal battle for all eternity? Strike against strike against strike against strike? No. Where, this is part of the curse. Don't forget where this prophecy sits. This is bad news. For the serpent. Very bad news. Not just that he hasn't won, as he thought, and now has a long war ahead of him. That's bad, but that's not bad enough. This is news that he is going down. You're going down, Satan. The seed of the woman will crush his head. The people of God will triumph over the deceiver. This is the first gospel. God's people will win in the end. The outcome has already been decided. Amen? And the ultimate offspring of the woman is Jesus Christ Himself. You see that little word, He, in verse 15? Who is that? If you have the King James Version, it says, It. In the Hebrew, it's a little third-person personal pronoun to refer to the offspring of the woman. And it could represent the people of God corporately, altogether. But Christians have always seen Jesus Himself in that little word. 
And some Jews saw the Messiah in it centuries before Jesus was even born. In some ways, the whole story of the Old Testament is a hunt for the he of verse 15. Have you seen this children's book called The Biggest Story by Kevin DeYoung and Don Clark? Have you seen this? We've, we've got it in our church library up here. It's, it's not really for little kids. Okay? I wouldn't give this one to your... I wouldn't give it to Simon and Copper just yet. Okay? It's not, not that little. It's really for bigger kids and big kids who love complexity and artistry. I love it. It's just gorgeous and theologically rich. You should look through and just look at the pictures. Here's the subtitle of it. The biggest story, How the Snake Crusher Brings Us Back to the Garden. Listen to how DeYoung tells this part of the story. God was not happy with Adam and Eve. He wasn't happy with the snake either. God put a curse on the man and the woman and the snake and everything else. He kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden paradise He had made for them. It wasn't possible for a people who were so bad to live with a God who is so good. They had to go. But before they left, God made a promise. He promised that the evil serpent, the devil, would always be at war with Eve and her children. Now that doesn't sound like a very nice promise. That bad guys and good guys would fight all the time. Who wants to be in a war that never ends? But here's where the good part of the promise comes in. God promised that one of Eve's children would someday, eventually, sooner or later, crush the head of that nasty snake. Nobody knew when or how. But she would have a child to put things right. Do you see how Genesis 3.15 is a messianic prophecy? The whole Old Testament is a search for that conquering snake crusher to appear. Is it Abraham? No. Is it Isaac? Uh Uh-uh. Is it Jacob? No way. Is it Joseph? Not quite. Is it Moses? No. Is it Joshua? Not really. Certainly wasn't one of those judges. How about David? Well, it almost seemed like it, didn't it? When we, were, when we were studying David in, in First and Second Samuel, didn't it seem like, here he is, here's the Messiah, he's the anointed one, but it wasn't him. And it wasn't any of his sons. Read First Kings and Second Kings, which we might this year. Until Christmas. When your Bible splits in two, from the Old Testament to the New, until that invasion of our world by the enfleshed Son of God coming as a warrior to save, Christmas is the game changer. Because when Jesus was tempted, just like Adam and Eve, though His temptation was much harder, it was in a desert instead of a garden, Jesus was victorious where Adam and Eve had failed. And then on the cross, when the serpent struck at His heel, He got the venom and He even died. Jesus still didn't lose. Jesus won at the cross. He won this battle at the cross. He paid for our sins at the cross. Satan was defeated at the cross. At the cross, Jesus was putting an end to this unending war, just as predicted in Genesis 3.15. The outcome had already been decided. And here's the application. Take heart. Right? That's what our hide the word verse says, right? All of our Advent readings say, take heart heart. I have told you these things so that in me, Jesus, you may have 
peace. Do you need peace right now? In this world you will have trouble. You're living in a war zone. But take heart. I have overcome the world. He's won the decisive battle. And so we can have peace and courage and joy today. Take heart. Those are the most precious words to me right now. Take heart. I have overcome the world. Do you need to hear that this morning? I know I do. Martin Luther did in his great song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. The Prince of Darkness Grim, we tremble not for Him. His rage we can endure. This battle, back and forth, back and forth. The serpent versus the the children of the woman. For lo, His doom is sure. One little word shall fell Him. Crash! Snake! Crushed! What's the little word? Jesus. Now I I know it doesn't feel this way all the time. It's hard to take heart. It's been hard for me these last two months to take heart. It's hard to see that Jesus has overcome the world because He has not yet returned to make His blessings known as far as the curse is found. We're still waiting. Because we're still living in the war zone. The decisive battle has been won, but the victory has not yet spread. And we have to keep watch. Like we talked about last week. While we wait for that victory to be spread around the universe and that peace to become universal. But He's told us to. Take heart. And that needs to be good enough for us now. Let me give you one more verse to chew on. It's in the book of Romans, chapter 16, verse 20. If the Lord gives me strength, we're going to return to Romans in a few weeks in the new year. So let me give you a preview of coming attractions. Listen to Romans 16.20 and hear the echoes of Genesis 3.15 and John 16.33. Paul says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. What's he saying? He's saying take heart. Satan will not just be crushed under Jesus' feet. Who's he say? Under your feet. That's a promise for you to go home with today. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. You will share in his victory. One day this war will be over and those who belong to Jesus will also be overcomers. Because Jesus came at Christmas to overcome. Take heart, Christian. Here's how Kevin DeYoung ends his little book. The snake crusher is coming back again to wipe away all the bad guys and wipe away every tear. He's coming to make a new beginning and to finish what he started. He's coming to give us the home we once had and might have forgotten that we lost. So keep waiting for him. Keep believing in him. Keep trusting that the story isn't over yet. God's promises never fail. And the promised one never disappoints. One day we will see him. One day we will be with him. One day there will be nothing but the best days. Day after day after day after day. And forever and ever it will be a wonderful time to be God's children in God's wonderful world. Take heart. 